No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer. And this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today, we are happy to introduce to the United States, Leanna Larkin, founder of Reluctant Heroin. Leanna is a survivor, a coach, and mentor, and through Reluctant Heroines, helps victims and survivors of rape and sexual abuse heal and rebuild their lives. So welcome to No Gray Zone. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It's really lovely to be here. We are thrilled to have you here. And we can't wait to get into everything that you are doing through Reluctant Heroin. But we want to talk about you and your story first. Mm -hmm. So we know that you talk openly about being a survivor of sexual assault. And oftentimes, We hear sexual assault described as an isolated incident or that somebody should seek immediate medical attention for injuries, for medicines to prevent diseases, for things like that. But we often don't talk about what happens the days, weeks, months, and even years later. Can you share just from your own experience, the long-term health impacts mentally, physically, sleeping patterns, you know, just how being a survivor has impacted your health from the time of the assault. And you know what, Catherine, I I love that question because it isn't a question that isn't spoken about enough or asked enough. And it's the response isn't something that's spoken about enough. Like you said, we do have a tendency to focus on the immediacy after a traumatic event, such as sexual violence, but the, the impact that sexual violence has long term isn't something that's spoken about enough. So, you know, thank you for asking that question. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to give voice to what so many women and humans across the world are suffering, but not able to find the language or find the space in order to express themselves or identify. So thank you. I think long term for me, so for a long time, I was in denial. I knew I'd been through some really horrific things, but I thought I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. Nothing. Yeah, I can keep going. I can keep going. What I found was I kept on burning out very, very quickly. So it would look very much like emotional burnout. I would always be the first one to start crying in a room or a situation. I would always feel like really, really guilty, like everything was my fault, even if I'd had nothing to do with whatever had gone wrong whether that be at home or at work or in a social friend situation I'd always be thinking oh was that me did I do something wrong I was always blaming myself 
Um, I would have a lot of flashbacks during um, intimacy whilst, you know, having sex with my partner. It was um, what I now know that that was it was undiagnosed trauma. Um, I also had a lot of um, negative inner beliefs, a lot of negative inner commentary absolutely disgustingly low self-worth as well and I all know now that I know now that that is this undiagnosed undiagnosed trauma and um, it meant that um, I had lots of counselling but because I didn't want to own up to the sexual violence that had occurred it never really got to the root cause of the problem it was always just surface level surface level I found that I didn't know why at the time, but I was always on red alert, ready to fight. So I could look in a room and I still, I've still got this now. I guess it's the superpower that nobody really wants. I can look in a room and I can use anything as a weapon. I would know how to hurt anybody with anything that completely inanimate, like the keyboard in front of me. I would know how to fight to get out of a room with the most inanimate of objects. I'd know how to hurt somebody with that. You know, I know that that's a trauma response. You know, that's the fight in me. That's that's what I had to learn to survive. Um, and so nobody talks about those long-term issues, you know, going to the doctors and always feeling burnt out and overwhelmed. So they just give you antidepressants, but antidepressants, they don't, they don't heal, do they? They don't take anything away. They don't actually fix anything. They just mask what you're feeling, which, you know, Sometimes we do need to mask what we're feeling because it's too big, but it wasn't actually ever going to get to the root cause. Now I know that it's undiagnosed trauma. I know how to get the help, but certainly before I didn't, I didn't know where to go. I thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought that there was something wrong inherently with me in my DNA. But I know again now that that is, that's a symptom of complex trauma, undiagnosed trauma. It's not me. It's a symptom of what I've been through and nobody speaks about that because if you are going to if you if you're not able to face up to what happened and you are going to live in denial you're going to have these symptoms but you're not going to understand why and I think it's really really important that we start talking about these traumatic symptoms that we have as victims and survivors because it explains so much of the way that our lives are shaped and formed and without that knowing, we're blaming ourselves when really it's not our fault. And it's, it's really unfair that we, we don't commit any crimes. We don't do this to ourselves, but we're the ones that have to carry it. So I think by facing up to it, as hard as it is, it explains so much. It's like a light bulb being switched on in a really dark room. You're like, okay, well, it doesn't feel any better, but actually I know why it is and I know it's not my fault. So I can start appreciating some of this blame and shame to where it really belongs, because as survivors and victims, especially those of those of us that don't disclose, we internalize, we internalize the shame, we internalize the pain, we internalize all the bad stuff and we turn it all on ourselves. And that doesn't help in our healing. Absolutely. You know, I think we we always say, you know, you're not to blame. And that's like the saying of the day, right? Like everyone says, it's not your fault, but we don't really, I don't know. We don't really mean that. I think as a society, because there's really not access to 
long-term care. And that kind of goes into my next question. And we, we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. And England, I think, is a far ahead of the United States, but not where we really should be. That every survivor's journey to healing is different. They need different things. And because of that, you sometimes need to talk to your employers about, you know, needing time off to take to go to therapy or needing time off, you know, after, you know, every three months because you may be building up anxiety that just needs to be released in a, you know, a a mental health day. And you sometimes don't get that support from your employer and, and the laws, at least in the United States, don't provide you that support. And I know we've talked about your lack of support from your employer and recognize that we need these services. How do we go about getting the support from our employer benefits from our employers, you know, internationally, because it really is an international problem. Yeah, I wish I had the one magic answer that would solve that question. I really do. Um, Certainly here in the UK, there was no trauma awareness within both management and HR. They had zero trauma awareness, um, zero understanding of what it would what it is like to be a victim of sexual violence and to come forward from that. I guess the answer is, is that those among us within our working spaces need to really hold themselves accountable as an ally, you know, by them not giving us the the time and space to heal to go to counseling to take time off because we carry so much complex trauma and we need to process that by them not understanding and giving us time and space they are just as bad as the perpetrators I think they are they are upholding a rape culture of brushing under the table you must get on with it you must be like everybody else and we're going to treat you like everybody else Actually, we're not like everybody else. We've been through one of the worst, most traumatic crimes that you can survive. And we need to be supported as such if they don't want this to be a a constant problem. I think the right kind of workplace that is an ally and an advocate for victims and survivors and who gives them that time and space to heal, they would have an employee for life. They really, really would. To be met with kindness and care and understanding is the one thing that victims and survivors need to be asked, what do you need from us? Just to be met with that question, what do you need from us to help you right now? To be met with that question, I think that's the answer. And then to follow through with that, I don't think that they can treat victims and survivors with the blanket policies and procedures that they treat I don't know, somebody who perhaps breaks their leg with, you know, it's, it's different. We are completely different and we should be, we should be treated as such because it is a huge thing. And we are a huge, huge, huge population of society and they're missing out. They're missing out on, on all of our amazing skills by keeping on blocking us. It's really not fair. You know, you talk about allyship and for all of us speaking out and, and making demands on our employers, ourselves, and on, for us, our, be our legislators to make these changes. Mm. But I think sometimes, you know, you need to be kind of hit in the face with the real world example and how this truly impacts somebody's ability to do their job. Mm-hmm. And I know that when we've spoken with you before, you shared a little bit about how it became basically untenable to try to go through the healing process with 
the limitations that your employers provided. Yeah. And I know you've spoken to many survivors about this same thing. Could you just share just on a personal level so that those who want to stand up and be allies can truly like have an idea of, of what this involves in the employer employee situation of what happened when you did go to your employer and you said, I need some time for healing. What were you permitted to have? And then because of that, what choices did you have Mm. to make personally about your job? Yes. So um, mm, what's a juicy question? (laughs) So um, I remember it vividly going to my boss. Um, It was a Friday morning that and um, I had to phone her before she liked to be phoned between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning. And so I made the phone call sitting on my kitchen floor in an absolute an absolute state because she was actually the only the second person that I disclosed to. I phoned her up and I said, I won't be in today. Um, I've had to make a self-referral to the Rape Crisis Centre. And she said, okay. So I took that day off and that was fine. I caught up with her a week later and um, we just had like a brief, 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 like quickly, are you okay? Yes, yes, I'm fine. Obviously, I didn't want to go into it because talking about it was very, very triggering for me. So a few months went past and I had to, I think I disclosed in the March and then I had an appointment come through for talking therapy with um, Rape Crisis Centre UK in the June. And there was lots of backwards and forwards going on because I could only have sessions with them during the working day. So I tried to arrange them for a Friday afternoon so it would impact as little as possible on my work. So she allowed me two sessions. She allowed me to have two sessions and that was just taking the afternoon off. So I would leave just after lunchtime and get to my session for around two or three o'clock. And then because I was I was teaching at the time, so we had the six weeks holiday. So I continued with my therapy throughout the six weeks holidays. But when I went back, because this Pandora's box had just been opened, I wasn't emotionally, I was really, really poorly. I was coping with a lot. And I went back and I had extra responsibilities at work. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to keep busy. I really do need this one day off a week because taking half a day isn't enough because I found I had to mentally prepare to mentally and physically and emotionally prepare for this opening Pandora's box on a Friday afternoon. And so I requested that I'd have the whole day. And she said to me, no, no. Well, only if you say that you're ill. And I said, I don't want to say that I'm ill. I don't feel like I'm the one who's ill here. For me, this isn't about being ill. For me, this is about getting better. So she said, oh, I'd ring HR. And there was just lots of backwards and forwarding. And in the end, she said that I had to, I was allowed to take the day, but it would be unpaid. Now, it was already a very low paying job, a massively low paying job. Um, you know, I had to scrabble around to find the money to catch the bus to work in the morning, that kind of low paying job. So taking a whole day of unpaid was really, really tricky for me. I had to really weigh it up. And I felt like I was being pushed into a corner. It was have the therapy or come to work, you know, that that's it's either or and then she came back with me to another idea she said okay so if you don't want to take a day's unpaid you can make up the time during the week so that would have put like an extra two and a half hours onto every single day which doesn't seem like a lot but when you are in the throes of unpacking sexual violence trauma the only time you have to process it is 
outside of work. Yeah, you're not allowed to process this stuff inside of work. It's ridiculous. You know, you can't do it. But the more you go into the box, the more it becomes harder to push back in. So I was thinking if I had two and a half hours to my day every day, I'm going to have even less time to process everything that's coming out. I'm not sure I can do this. And at work, she kept on just piling more and more on, more and more covering for other teachers, more work on. And then in the end, I just became so ill that I visited my doctor and I told my doctor what happened. And she said, right, take two weeks off. So I took two weeks off and that two weeks off turned into a year. I had to take a whole year off. There's just the unpacking of the trauma and not being supported at work. I think if through the work, if she have said there's another woman who's also got two little girls, you know what, as women, we shouldn't go through this and I'm going to support you. I don't care what HR says. I'm going to give you this day, this day paid, because I know you work your absolute butt off Monday to Thursday. And don't worry about waking up the time, darling, because you know what? I know how I can't imagine how hard it is, but I want to support you anyway. If she'd have done that, I wouldn't have had to take that year off. Even now, looking back, not being supported by another woman. It was just it was such a massive stab in the back. I can't the damage that she's done and the damage caused by the HR department. I cannot wait to be strong enough to go back and give them some trauma information and to to educate them. I cannot wait to go back. I hope that answered the question. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I know it's really difficult, and I, but I think it's really important because you your story is unfortunately so not unique. I think people yes throughout the UK and the US do not feel like their jobs support them when they reveal sexual violence, whether it happened in the workplace, whether it happened outside of the workplace, they don't feel like telling HR is a safe place, like telling their supervisor is a safe place. And it should be, we should all be helping and being allies because that's the only way we're going to solve the problem. And you said that earlier, it's a really important and I think powerful point. And I think part of what you just talked about was the difficulty that, that survivors have in finding treatment and support. You said it took you, you disclosed in March and you didn't you know, get connected to um, talk therapy until June. Something else that we've talked about, which is that the lack of access to quality help and just the lack of access to it completely. And can you talk a little bit about why that's such a big problem, why survivors need immediate help and why the lack of services makes the problem worse than it already is? For me, on a personal level, I was quite pleased that it took a couple of months for the appointment to come through because it gave me time from making that initial disclosure It gave my nervous system just time just to settle down until taking another step. I know that for other women, though, they need it straight away. Not having that support straight away can have such huge impacts on being a parent, on being a friend, being, being a sibling. It impacts everything. And I think that's not enough people understand how trauma impacts across the whole board, across the entire board. And it's almost like going to a new country and not knowing the language. And you need to get somewhere or you need to order something or you need to buy something or you need to share or you just need to talk, but you don't know the language. And so you become isolated. You become on your own. 
and it doesn't get better. And that's just what sexual violence is and not having that support because we're not taught the language behind sexual violence unless we get professional or expert experienced help. And so the longer that that's kept from us, the longer we are, we become isolated and alone and scared. It can be very, very alienating not having that support. We do want to talk about what you've done so that no other survivor feels isolated or that they don't have anybody who speaks their language. So can you talk to us about how you came about opening up Reluctant Heroines? Yes, I would love to talk about that one. Um, (laughs) So rape crisis in the UK, they offer 20 free sessions. Within my local rape crisis UK, they they offered me 20 free sessions. So I did those 20 free sessions. And I naively thought, 20 sessions, by the end of that, I will be fixed. Little did I know that that was not going to be the case. It gets to the end of their 20 sessions. And actually... I am in in a massive emotionally raw space and then I'm just left, just let go of. And I've been pushing ahead these whole sessions like, oh, come on, I've got to my whole life hinged on each counselling session because I kept thinking I've only got 20 sessions to get better. I've only got 20 sessions for this to fix. And it got to the end of the 20 sessions. And like I said, it wasn't finished. I wasn't I wasn't finished I was only just starting I'd only just started talking about it and I remember I was walking along the road and I thought I can't be the only one I cannot be the only one where talking therapy isn't enough talking therapy didn't give me the language that I needed it didn't give me the understanding all talking therapy did was it gave me a space to say I feel this and I feel that It didn't help me understand complex trauma. It didn't help me understand rape culture. It didn't help me understand feminism. It didn't even give me the tools that I needed to start healing. And so I started researching and reading and listening to inspiring and amazing people. And I thought, I cannot, I cannot let the women who come after me be in this position because it's not fair. It's not fair and it's not right. So I put Reluctant Heroines together. I channeled everything that I knew, all the different techniques that I've learned, all the language and the understanding. I channeled it into Reluctant Heroines because it's not right that that information isn't readily available to the hundreds and thousands and millions of humans across our world who don't have this understanding that I do. I just want to share it with women, victims and survivors. I just want to help them heal. I want to be, I want to be the person who walks alongside them in their journey. I want to be the person who strings fairy lights up during that dark, 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 horrible phase, because to walk it alone and to walk it without the understanding or the expertise is horrible. Not even my local library had books on healing from sexual violence. You know, it's just, it's just not good enough. So I just channeled everything I had into this to give it to the women coming after me. I love the stringing fairy lights during the dark time. It really just, I love that. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how the pro- how Reluctant Heroin works, the program works for someone who may not know about it. Yes. So the Reluctant Heroines program is a year long program, which any at the moment, it's just open to women 
but I will be in the future opening up to every single human that wants to join in the whole wide world. Um, but one step at a time, Yana, right? <laughs> so at the moment, it's a year-long program. It currently consists of seven steps. The seven main steps defined my healing journey. They consist of inner child work. They consist of learning about feminism. They consist of facing up to negative inner commentaries. The list goes on and on and on. It also consists of live workshops and support groups that are run throughout the year. So those live support groups would be, I don't know, talking about sex in a healthy and safe way. You know, there's a lot of victims and survivors that never really had that sex education, especially if you're coming from somewhere like childhood sexual abuse. You know, we we offer that space. We'll be working with other women out there so recently I have started working with a woman who is also a victim but who specializes in eating disorders because that is something that a lot of victims and survivors suffer with and that is something that Elsa isn't spoken about also working with a dominatrix who herself was a victim and looking at sexual well intimacy and pleasure looking at intimacy and pleasure and how you can find power in that it's it's a year-long program what I think actually what I'm thinking is actually it really needs to be a lifetime needs to be a lifetime program that you can pay up and have a lifetime of support for because as I'm walking my journey I'm finding out that there isn't a beginning and an end it is it is going to be a lifetime and I think the way forward for all services that support victims and survivors that it should be made available for the entire life for their entire lives we love that it's starting as a year-long program and that it covers a variety of topics because every victim and survivor is going to heal differently yes every victim and survivor is going to feel the trauma differently Mm. and they're going to connect with one service one way and somebody else will connect with another service a different way. Mm-hmm. And so having all of those available really does make all survivors feel welcome into the program. So we know that you've said right now it's for women, but how else can people help participate or support reluctant heroines if they are experts in the field, if they want to just help financially, what can people do to help reluctant heroines? Just get in touch with me. You can message me via Instagram. I'm always happy for people to send me a little cheeky little message or you can get in contact with me through my website. Just get in touch. I am so open. I am so open to collaboration. I am so open to people buying me a cheeky cup of tea as well. That would be so lovely. Just get in touch. If you're a victim or a survivor listening to this, I promise you, I don't bite. I only bite the ones that need biting. And you're probably not going to be one of those people. So I don't bite. I'm not mean. I'm not nasty. I will probably make you laugh at some point. I just get in touch. Just, I think it all starts with that being brave to take that one step as a victim or survivor. And that one step can be insurmountable. It can feel so, so huge. But just listen to that voice that's inside of you that says, Do you know what? I want more. I want more than what what I'm feeling right now. This doesn't feel right. Use that energy to to reach out. And if you're a professional, come and get involved. I want to squeeze your brain full of all the great brilliance that's inside. And let's, let's help 
victims and survivors everywhere. Let's just, let's be an ally. Let's stand up. I mean, it's not enough just to write something on Instagram. It's that's, that's not being an ally. Being an ally is actually doing something. What can you do in your capacity as the person that you stand listening to this podcast today? What are you able to give to a victim or a survivor today? And even if it's just something small, just, just do that. And we will have all of Leanne's links in the podcast notes so that you can get in touch, so they can reach out. And you, you kind of started to touch on this, but for survivors who are listening, who may not have taken that insurmountable first step yet, what, what is the one thing you kind of want them to know? I would really like them to know that they are not crazy, that they, and that their feelings are real. Because I blamed myself for a long, long time, and I know I'm not the only one. So please know that you are not crazy. You are not the only one. And this isn't your fault. You're not feeling like this because it's anything that you have done. There is, no, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with you. Okay. So take, take some strength in that. 100%. They're not alone. They're not to blame. Yes. That is all the time that we have for today. If you want to learn more about Leanna or Reluctant Heroines, please go to LeannaLurkin.com. Follow her on social media at Reluctant Heroines on Instagram, Facebook. As Melissa said, we will have the links to all of them in our notes. Leanna, thank you so much for joining us. And the floor is yours for any final parting thoughts. Thank you, Catherine and Melissa. Thank you for... Thank you for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being open to the conversation that we had today. And thank you for being you and the work that you do. Yeah, just hats off to you, both of you. It makes me, makes me bring some tears to my eyes, knowing that there's humans in the world like you. So thank you to you. Thank you. And, and one day we will get that cheeky cup of tea. Although you say it very, I like the way you say it much better than me. <laughs> <laughs> As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe and you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to helping a survivor find resources and treatment. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring.